So what is the future of the future? And how the heck can you be part of it so that you're not left behind in the past? That is the topic of today's episode with the one and only Francis Valentine, founder of the Mind Lab and Tech Futures Lab. I am super excited to release this interview with her. You are going to learn a lot. Are you tapping into your potential? Are you then taking that potential and turning it into a purposeful and profitable online offering so you can impact more people, share your skills and expertise, and make a dent in the world? And are you doing this while living a life that fills you with purpose, happiness, and opportunities for growth? This may all sound too good to be true, and I am telling you, it isn't. These are the big questions that I seek to answer on The Untapped Show, a podcast for go-getting humans who know that more is possible for them in life and who want to make real changes and live up to and beyond their human potential. In this weekly podcast, I share nuggets of wisdom on how to do this, combined with inspiring interviews with everyday humans who are doing this right now so that we can all learn from each other. I'm your host, Natalie Sisson, a best-selling author, podcaster, blogger, lifelong learner, triathlete and lover of handstands and who took her humble blog back in 2010 and somehow managed to turn it into a multiple six-figure business by creating different revenue streams based around my skills, talents and knowledge. And I know that this is possible for you too. So every single week, that's what you're going to hear here on this podcast to give you inspiration, motivation, strategy and tactics to do this for yourself and to lead a purpose-driven life. So let's dive in to this week's show. So Frances Valentine is one heck of a mover and shaker, and she believes that we're living in a time of great advancement and rapid disruption, where progress and the ability to look forward and plan for tomorrow is essential for long-term success. So Frances is at the cutting edge of what we need to do to stay relevant as we move into a future filled with uncertainty, filled with technology taking over our jobs or automating it, streamlining it, and allowing us to essentially tap into more of our human skills. Now, if you listen to episode 32 on Untapped last week, I share my presentation that I did just recently talking about these major trends and forces happening in the future of work and learning. Now, Frances takes us even further because she is living and breathing this. At the time we interviewed, had just finished up the Future of Future conference that she hosted and interviewed all these incredible people on stage. But what I love about Frances is she's really obviously forward thinking and she's looking at how do we reinvigorate our existing skills, adopt new practices, and integrate people who think differently and implement and development new capabilities that are going to determine success in our country here, Aotearoa, New Zealand, both individually and as businesses. She knows that our future economic success has a greater reliance on people who combine science, technology, design, and creativity in ways that we are only just starting to realize. And this is a time of great advancement and rapid disruption. And the ability to be able to look forward and plan for tomorrow is essential for long-term success. So in our interview, we discuss a lot of those things. And I think you are going to find it fascinating. I hope it's going to open your eyes, expand your mind, and really get you thinking about what role you are going to play in the future of work and just how you can thrive in it. So I hope you enjoy this episode. You can find it at nataliesisson.com forward slash 33. I've dropped show notes in there and special links that I know you're going to want to look at and more information about Francis. But for now, we can dive into the interview. 
So I'm super thrilled to have the lovely Frances Valentine with me on the Untapped podcast today because this lady is literally coming to us from the future in many ways, I think. Uh, I thought that I'd been operating in this futuristic void for so, so long, but Frances, this is something that you live and breathe, you teach, you share, you speak about. You're a, sort of a leading authority, I think, here in New Zealand and around the world on it. So welcome to the show. Oh, kia ora. it's so great to be here this morning. Yeah, it is fantastic. It's a beautiful sunny day in New Zealand. Hope it is in Auckland. And I'd really just love for people to learn a little bit more about you and what you currently do, and then we can go back to the journey of what got you there. Okay. It's a really hard place to just define. My passion is thinking about capability and what do we need for the road ahead. And so it's I work in the space between thinking about the whole ecosystem of learners. So from young children, what do they need to know? How do they need to be thinking versus their teachers? And what do they need to be thinking about? And how do they teach a new generation of these alpha students who are coming through within totally different ideas around sharing and collaboration and who owns information? And then through to the corporate world, where you have probably the greatest pressures uh, we've ever seen, where there's literally entire organisations who are sort of imploding because they don't have the skills and capability and the competition that's coming at them doesn't look like anything they've ever seen before. And that includes obviously the people in the workforce and how they want to work. And so I have two organisations, one the Mind Lab, which is really focused on those younger children and the teachers that teach them, and then Tech Futures Lab, which is entirely focused on more of the corporate uh, world, uh, the influence into uh, government organisations, governance and capability across you know, bigger organisations as they can navigate the space. Mm, beautiful. So you're sort of spanning that that whole divide. And then, of course, the ageing population is also one that I'm fascinated with. Are you seeing people come into um, the Tech Futures Lab who are older and wanting to reskill or remain relevant? Or do you feel that there's still something that, that could be done for people, you know, even in their 60s who are going to be working through into their 70s in, in entirely different roles in many ways? Yeah, actually, we're very focused on adult learners. And adult in our world is actually typically people in their 40s, hmm. uh, the average age. Uh, <laughs> risk for someone in 40, they, they can see the changes happening, their roles have changed, redundancy is more of a regular feature of their career. But actually, if you look across that, we actually have people right through to their 70s who are still very actively involved with learning. And actually, if you look across into my other organisation, into the Mind Lab, where we've had 5,000 teachers undertake postgraduate studies with us, the average age of a teacher in New Zealand is 55. So, you know, I think, hmm. yes, it's probably fair to say that, you know, the most of my time is spent with people who are, you know, 40 plus. And I'm really encouraged by just the level of commitment to reskilling that's going on. But I have to say it's very skewed towards females. We have, even within our Master of Technological Futures, which you'd think automatically, if you put a bias on it, you'd probably think we are more male dominated. Actually, it's quite the opposite. Why do you think you're seeing that? Because women are, nope, I'm not even going to try and uh, (laughs) my two cents. Why do you think you're seeing that? I think there is an element of less stigma attached to learning uh, as females. You know, I think that there is a bit of a New Zealand way, particularly where we think about if you are successful in your profession, your chosen career, then to show that you're going back to learning, back to the drawing board and reskilling, it's almost seen as a sign of being a, you know, a weakness. And I think it is definitely more prevalent here than I see anywhere else in the world. And I also wonder if there's an element of our small business economy is that a lot of people aren't feeling the real pinch right now. They're you know, running organisations which are reasonably small. 
and they're just not seeing that the actual changes that they're coming or have already happened impacting quite yet. Mm. And I think that if you go across into other markets, you know, we don't have that same small business economy that we do have here. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing that with clients and customers that I'm talking to. I think they're very aware of what's coming, but they, as you say, they're not seeing it hit them yet. And they're sort of holding on to these skills that they've rightly honed over 10, 20, even 30 years. And it can be really, really confronting to think about having a beginner's mind and going back to what you don't know, learning completely new skills, or even not abandoning what you know, but actually going back to think, is there a different way that I could learn this or experience this or become skilled in this again? And I know I've been going through that myself, everything I thought I knew really well, which I do, but I I went back to it and kind of started from the beginning again, just to make sure I hadn't missed anything and to brush up on my skills and to expand my experience and also my mind. And it's definitely a challenging thing to be in that place of wanting to grow, but also knowing what it takes to become a very good learner and actually master skills. Yeah, I think the the backdrop of change is so rapid. Yesterday, I had the most extraordinary day hosting the Future of the Future event here in, in Auckland. Oh, with yeah. just world leaders that um, I got to host. And probably some of the most interesting conversations I've had in a long time where I sat around the day before with them in a hotel lobby and I just literally didn't want to leave because you know they, they have this insight that really puts things together and plays right into my field. But if you think about where the economy sits right now, you know, the, the largest, most powerful organisations are not government anymore and increasingly are platform-based tech giants. And we've got this rise of these distributed autonomous organisations who are sort of coming in from this you know, open source, tribal, get together, hack the system, bring about change that you don't see. You know, it's not something that's very visible. And, and as soon as you start talking to people who live in this sort of traditional analog world about blockchain, it's sort of like a glaze over and and, and they sort of <laughs> move on. And, and they're still, you know, sort of imagining it's something to do with cryptocurrency instead of thinking about the restructuring of organisations. And what does it mean to have economic value when GDP is no longer a value, you know, a measure of success? And so some of the themes are really complex because people are going, I don't understand this stuff. This just feels really foreign in terms of the terminology, what it means, this non-hierarchical structural change. And, and as I talk to organisations, particularly around recruitment, they're saying that the younger generation, now we're seeing the, the, the Generation Z coming into our workforce Sometimes they're only going in for you know two or three days before they're backing out and saying, "Whoa, this is not for me. This mm. this structural hierarchical corporate structures is just not my place," and and they just don't relate to it at all. Mm. And too right, I um I can wholeheartedly agree with them. I would love to know a couple of the key things that you found the most important that came out of the Future of the Future event. I forgot it was yesterday, and I was so excited that you were hosting that. Would have loved to have been there, but. And the fact that you are living and operating in this world right now, what, if anything, surprised you that maybe you hadn't seen coming or was everything quite on par with what you've been seeing yourself? So, you know, these are, you know, absolute giants of industries so from Google, from Microsoft in, in terms of AI. There are people from who are looking at the innovation labs from Nokia and based in Copenhagen just world-class designers like Bruce Mao, who I've just been in awe of my whole life, so I couldn't believe I was interviewing him. The general theme across all the speakers yesterday was around our place as sort of our 
biological creature in a planet with where it's under threat, this environmental impact and nature, and that actually we need to increasingly work with and for nature and less around the structures, the, the kind of man-made structures. Because if we think about the way we interact and think about it more organically, we'll get to a place where this technology is part of what we do, but it doesn't determine everything for us. So there was these big complex themes around artificial intelligence and not sort of playing into that space where it would control every everything we saw and everything that was influenced. And design and creativity was a really big theme. Not surprising given some of them were you know, world-class designers. But I do think this concept around life is changing. So these are, you know, these are humankind type conversations about what it means to be a human on the planet heading into 2020. So you, you wouldn't have wanted to go into it if you were thinking you were going to have an easy morning a session listening in, because actually it was very demanding on people in terms of questioning what it means to be uh, and contributing in this planet. I think that in the education world, once something that really resonated with me was from uh, Bruce Moore, who's his specialization focuses around mass, his massive change network. So he has these rules around massive change and he said something yesterday, which I've heard before, which reminded me of how important it is, which is, you know, the world is changing fast, but it's never going to be slower than it is today. And, you know, so if everyone keeps thinking, well, I'll kind of get there, I'll get on that journey of learning and reskilling and thinking differently somewhere down the track, the gap just gets bigger. And so, you know, we need to take this sort of jump in, boots and all, even if we don't really understand it, as soon as we possibly can, so that we don't suddenly wake up one morning and go, I don't even understand this language of business hmm. and, and where we're going. And he was talking in education about you can't go into a program now with a view that you're going to learn content, you know, that this is going to be just like this sort of plug in some knowledge and you'll do okay. And saying, you know, the greater purpose is education needs to be looking at the greater purpose of what we can achieve and actually how we use information and how we bring it together and this sort of transdisciplinary approach. Um, where it's not siloed knowledge, that you have to be thinking, you know, how does the scientific world influence what you're doing in the technological world and the organic world? And, and how do they kind of all smash up together? Right. Yeah. So bringing in different spheres of influence into learning, even if it's not related to your particular role or function at the time, because it may well be in the very near future. Yeah, and I think if you if you think about historic historically, education has been in these very very tight silos. The bodies of knowledge, are, you know, you're in the the world of engineering, and or you're in the world of education or medicine or whatever it might be. And now, you know, actually, you can't be because you know medicine's informed a lot by science and data, and it's informed by technology. And like likewise, every sector has got this influence of this cross disciplinary approach. And so, well, it hasn't really happened here in New Zealand in our institutes. If you look at the world leaders in contemporary education and future studies, all of them have moved that way and saying, you know, let's let's bring these bodies of knowledge together. Mm. It's interesting because I, I'm in a learning environment right now. And when I first came back to Wellington, the land of um, government, I kept hearing this term SME. And so in my mind as an entrepreneur, it's always been small, medium enterprise. And for this, it was actually subject matter expert. And at the time I was like, oh, it's fascinating that there is one subject matter expert for this particular field. And thinking about what you're just saying now, I really do, even though I love, you know, people niching down and having mastery in one thing, I don't really think there's going to be any relevance for that tighter knowledge on one particular topic. I mean, I really do think that this is a time where, as you said, we have to be so much more 
responsive to all the things that are impacting on us and take in the, the greater field of knowledge. Even if we are still wanting to focus in on a niche, we still have to think about all the things that are um, impacting it, as you said. So I just don't think having being a subject matter expert is going to be as relevant unless it's across a lot of different fields, which I don't know if you can actually do. The other thing you said about nature is really interesting to me and, and the planet because there's so much we can learn from nature. And I love organisations who have looked very closely at how does nature form and process and actually happen right in front of us in such an incredibly complex but beautifully simple way in many ways. And I think a lot of businesses who have tried to mimic how nature works have done a pretty successful job of yeah, understanding all the processes and what impacts other things. Is that kind of what they were talking about yesterday or have I gone a little bit off tangent? No, no, absolutely. I, I think that they're saying is we talked a lot, not just yesterday, but with, when I had the one-on-one conversation with them about obsolescence and redundancy. You know, that the really weird thing that I've always focused on is we build for too long we've built obsolescence or redundancy into things that shouldn't be. So fast fashion, technology where the battery runs out over a period of time, to things that break that are, you know, it's not even economically viable to replace or sort of fix them, you have to replace them. So we've created all this, you know, extra rubbish in, in an economic current, this sort of changing economic value. And yet we don't build in obsolescence and redundancy into things that do need to be changed, like education. The professional kind of if you're looking at, you know, say banking or engineering or anything else, where every year there these big advances and we almost need to say well what doesn't apply anymore this year that actually we need to replace this with better information so we've almost had this the wrong way around between where we build in this obsolescence so we talked about it a lot in terms of today's companies that are really smart are, are actually building for long to, to build things of higher quality that will last the distance and so we're not needing to replace and then a lot of that will be thinking about the impact of nature but also how it reflects nature Mm. And, you know, in the, in the audience there, I think it was 1,200 people, you could really sense this energy around this idea of less things, less stuff, and better quality, more experiences, better connection to the environment, better connection to people. And, you know, I was really encouraged by the conversations both during and afterwards. The questions that came through were intelligent and informed, and people are really hungry for this change, mm. moving away from just, you know, let's create more stuff because we can. Yeah, and as a minimalist at heart, and we were just talking before I started recording about how we're both sort of downsized over the years and currently we are, you know, I do struggle with how much stuff everybody has and also the throwaway nature of society. A really small example is the place that we're moving into has a lovely kitchen and cabinetry in a colour that is kind of a bit um, old school and I simply asked around the other day and said, is it possible to just have these spray painted? I know it's a small example, but they said, no, but we can replace them with these new cupboards. And I was like, but they're perfectly, like I just, in my very nature, I was like, they're perfectly fine. They're excellent quality. Surely somebody must be able to spray paint these for something that's not extortionate cost. And yet the very first thing that both of these companies said was to just take them out and replace them. Mm. And we need to be reusing and recycling. And I was like, it frustrates me how quickly people throw things away. Or as you said, that batteries are a perfect example. And that's why I love, you know, all these wonderful USBs and things that you can just use and are always there and you don't need to connect and have things that are going to be thrown away and have a short term life. But in many ways, that kind of reflects the roles and the future, the skills that we need as well as they have to be lasting and we have to keep on top of them. So I'd love for you to just maybe share, especially in the um, Tech Futures app, what you're starting to see as some of the key skills and key areas that we should be focusing on if we want to remain relevant and thrive. Um, And definitely from sort of that perspective of creating your own path, of having your own business or 
a career that really is going to have lots of twists and turns. What are you seeing as some of the absolute key skills and areas that people are going to need to know about, especially given that the OECD estimates that there's going to be this new job categories of which 70% of which we don't even know what they are yet. And that's kind of freaky to be operating in that environment. Yeah, look, absolutely. And and look, I think there are some skills that people are very aware that they need to pick up on the things like collaboration and and that creative thing and really start to be open-minded, the growth mindset. You know, some of those have been around for a long time. From my point of view, we actually need to be thinking how do you sell yourself if you are transitioning into a new type of role? How do you define what your achievement has been? Because actually, achievement can't just be a financial achievement, how many, how many things I've sold or what I've done. Also things like, uh, how do you indicate how good you are as a problem solver? You know, I think that we need to be thinking about problem solving across all parts of business. It doesn't matter if you're sitting in an accountancy firm or you're out there you know, in the retail floor. The communication styles have changed. We need to be thinking about how do we communicate. And that means, you know, like we are here today on Zoom, right through to sharing documents in the cloud. And we have to understand what that means if we're, you know, we're not in the same paper-based type environments anymore. We have to show that we're learners. People want to know that you're actively learning and engaged with curiosity and this idea of, you know, if you don't know it, how will you find the answer? I think the the collaboration piece can't be emphasized enough that people now want to work in teams of people who are not the same. So not just people just like me who have the same backgrounds or qualifications or experience, but people who are fundamentally different. So you can build friction into conversations in a good way. Debate is really underrated, I think, but I think if you bring the ability to confidently and authentically bring debate into a workplace and show that you can do that without having judgment or biases or to be offended, then actually you're a really valuable contributor because actually that's the point of a voice is to be able to sort of have the viewpoint and and the ability to kind of talk that through. And the other area which I think is interesting is this idea of everybody being a producer. So, and I don't mean that in terms of producing things, Mm -hmm. but actually this role of, if you think of production, is how do you bring disconnected things together and see across these potentially unrelated, what appear to be unrelated themes or concepts. So in an organization, looking at like a macro view of what's going on in your world. So if I use the world of, say, a telco, you know, understanding the technologies that's changing, the 5G impact that's coming through, the play in, into the streaming media and, and looking at content and where's that going, looking at the, the teams that you need to bring together to make the changes happen. So that could be engineers with technical technicians and marketing people and comms people. And so there is a far greater emphasis now on this ability to work across different parts of organizations and bring it together. And where I work with organizations that haven't changed, you sense it when you walk in, you're suddenly in a room of say 20 people who have got the same degree of similar age, possibly of the same gender, and you realize that they are literally convincing each other they're doing a good job. There's just no, there's no new input. Mm-hmm. There's no, uh, nothing that's going to change up the conversation or have them think differently. Yeah. Yes, I do see a lot of that because I think in some ways what we call the future of work is mislabeled because it's happening right now. And I think that future bit gives people this time to go, I've got time to get to grips with it. It's okay, but it's actually happening right now. So for all those organizations, when you see that, do you feel it's kind of your responsibility or role to say, hey, wake up, this is happening right now and here's what you need to be doing? Uh, Or how are you... That's kind of the way I feel I'd approach it sometimes. It's like, once a slap in the face, this is happening. But obviously, 
you probably have much better ways of kind of trying to get that sense of urgency across to them about what change needs to happen. So how do you go about doing that? And this is for people who are listening in who may be having the same challenge at work or even within their own organization or the business that they're growing. Um, if they're seeing those attitudes that are, it won't affect us or it's not here yet. Sorry. <laughs> Julia, do you mind just jumping off? Is that okay? Thank you. <laughs> I'll be with you soon. Thanks. No, sorry. <laughs> so that in terms of how do you get this messaging across when people don't necessarily see it or feel it or, or are sort of turning their back on it, the one of the things I do is get them to be in a room of some of the younger staff members. And if they don't have young staff members, which is often the case, mm-hmm. is to rent a crowd, bring them in, bring in a, a bunch of people age, you know, as young as say 15, but certainly into that 25 to 30. Now, given that millennials now are up to the age of 37 and they are the dominant uh, grouping in their workforce, you know, I think people go, oh, millennials are young. Well, actually, no, I would put millennials into the kind of the mainstream part of New Zealand now in terms of business. So actually the Gen Zs are really important and ask them about what their motivations are and their values and their sense of purpose and how they would reimagine the organisation. It's quite extraordinary and quite confronting when they, when a grouping of people who have often very little voice in an organisation have a word or have a say. The other one is I get people to look at a job board and, and say, okay, look, I want you to find... Assuming your role is no longer exists. So let's just say they are a, a marketing assistant. Go and find another job that you could do, but it cannot be a marketing assistant. And actually go and get them to look at job ads and actually look at the terminology that they use and the descriptions. And, and so say, for example, someone's more senior and, and they may be a, a sales director. And they look at ads and they're hearing and talking about user journeys and design thinking and UXs and UIs and, and APIs and, you know, and talking about Trello and Slack, and, and they're sitting there going, I have no idea what the stuff is. <laughs> that, you know, sometimes at that point they realise these are the jobs being advertised today and I'm not really suited for them because I just don't have understanding of what that means. Yeah, and if these are being advertised today, imagine what the future is going to be like even in a couple of years, especially when we start working even more, and I know you do, with virtual reality and AI, as you mentioned, um, and just all these technologies that we're going to need to keep on top of and even integrate with and merge with in many ways. So, yeah, that's fascinating. I love those two exercises. Um, I appreciate we haven't touched, and I'd love to finish off with this, just on the journey that's led you to where you are because, you know, you hold such an incredible role in New Zealand and you're at the forefront of a lot of this. And i just love to sort of know the journey that got you. <laughs> it's not very exciting. Exciting, I have to say, and probably not, not particularly, uh, well, it's a, it's a strange one. I, I actually uh, grew up on a farm in Hawara in, in Taranaki, so side of the mountain. And I guess the common factor or feature of my life is this really innate curiosity. You know, I was a really creative kid who did lots of things where I love this idea that things could be created. And I felt I was always going to end up in a very creative industry. And that was my direction. I was heading all the way through, certainly through my schooling. It was actually a bit of a segue that I had. I left to London at 17 on a one-way ticket, not really sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I didn't want to go to university at that stage and ended up uh, working in the fashion industry in Turkey. But what was really interesting about that was a time, and this is by the time I got there, it was probably about 1990, technology was starting to come to play. And, and I happened to be working with people who were really into technology. And I suddenly found this world of creativity and put up against with technology. It was just my happy place. And then... Another weird kind of situation happened. I had to come back to New Zealand. The first Gulf War broke out and I had to leave Turkey. So reluctantly came back and I ended up working in a role looking at uh, New Zealand education offshore, like bringing international students to New Zealand. And it gave me a chance to be back offshore again. So it looked pretty interesting. And 
this is when this is the very first international students coming to New Zealand. And so in that process, I suddenly realized this role that education had that, you know, people with the right access to knowledge and, and the right people could be anything they wanted to be. Mm. And I was like, this is really powerful because I hadn't gone to university, you know, enjoyed school, had gone through it, but I'd never had this compelling reason to go to university because I could really know what I wanted, which is really ironic now that, you know, I've been in education for 25 years. Um, <laughs> I did eventually get to university, uh, not until I was 40, but I did realize this power of just being really open to new information. And I watched people develop capability that they couldn't imagine or have a, you know, have a goal of, I want to become a, and go off and four years later or two years later or a month later, whatever it was be, they were that in that role. Mm. So that was really, in 1998, through to 2013, I was the CEO at the Media Design School involved with the creative and technology industry. So that was a really great experience when I was literally at the beginning of New Zealand's film and game industry uh, evolution and training in that space. And it wasn't until 2013 when I started the Mind Lab, when I was really thinking about my own children. They were te- you know, into teenage years and I was thinking about what they were learning and what I was seeing. And I really wanted to make sure that we didn't have another generation that felt like they were sort of in between this analog and digital world. Thinking it was going to be a small project, uh, which sort of ballooned very quickly and uh, I just love it. And do you just want to share what the Mind Lab does? Because I know it's just so special um, that kids have access to this sort of fully immersive experience, really. But do you just want to share a little bit about what it is and the impact it's had? So actually, it's really changed. Because when we first kicked off in 2013, we started in Auckland. We then opened centres in Gisborne, Wellington and Christchurch. And it was at a time when schools were really reluctant to bring digital into the curriculum at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, robotics and coding was unheard of in the schools even though a lot of teachers were really interested by what it might provide students in terms of their interests. And so we went through, we've actually taught in, in, uh, in the, what is it now? It's, uh, I guess it's like six, six, coming up seven years. Yeah. Um, the real focus there was getting both the students and teachers understanding it. What's been amazing is we had 250,000 students over that time have been taught, which is phenomenal a lot of them are just in short programs they're not and they mostly come in with their school group so it's it's a, like an outbound program but actually I can tell you right now primary schools do this job so phenomenally well that actually our need to provide that service has really diminished significantly schools particularly at primary have you know there's all sorts of coding clubs and digital clubs and people creating films and animations and you know games and and you know in a few years we've just seen such an incredible lift in primary schools doing that stuff so now we have our facility for children is actually just at motat in auckland uh, it's the last of our physical ones for children and we moved more online to provide a free resource with mindlabkids.com where they can oh, do cool. Same stuff they can do at home or in the classroom. So it's sort of a resource source, you know, just a free resource for teachers and children. And I love the way you've, you know, morphed with that and sort of seen with the times what people are needing and how in some ways you've influenced the schools to do more of this themselves, which is great. It's like being a leading learner and allowing them to have the skills to do that. I'm curious about why initially they were really reticent to adopt technologies or introduce them to the kids. Was that more from the teacher's point of view or the education curriculum that they didn't want that disruption or did they see it as too advanced or were they concerned about the costs or was it actually that they were a little bit scared they didn't know enough to be able to teach it what do you think was the the real reason I think it's a real combination all the above inequality and equity about devices was a big one like people were 
there was a, a sort of an imagination that everyone had to have their own device. And it was at a time when the iPad was out and suddenly it was all the, sort of the wealthier schools all had, you know, class sets of iPads and schools with less resource might have, a, you know, what we, they called a cow, like a computer network of like four or five sort of good old fashioned desktop computers right. that didn't really have a lot of capacity. And it was only when we started saying, actually, you can have, you know, two devices or some mobile phones and smartphones were starting to come into the market and you don't need, you know, a whole lot of technology. And in fact, a lot of the stuff that can be done doesn't need to be technology-based at all. The principles are the same. And once that was more understood and actually that the kids could almost teach themselves, I mean, it was it was sort of saying to a teacher, for example, hey, you're doing a book report. And say the book report is on Peter Pan, let's just say. Instead of having a, a child write the report about what they thought about this book, why not ask them if they want to get together with some friends and create a little video? And it could talk into camera video and edited. It could be performance, you know, filming people and acting, you know, a, a scene from the book. Another child might say, well, I actually want to make a little animation with, you know, sort of stop motion and do something. And, and once the teachers realized that that was a really interesting artifact, you know, an interesting way to showcase what they knew, and they didn't have to know it themselves, that these kids could actually figure out how to do this editing and filming and what they needed to do, there was a lot more confidence. And then once we started teaching, teaching teachers, which was in 2014, the teachers who came in were, you know, totally transformational in New Zealand's teaching system. There has just been such an uptake right right across, you know, from Invercargill to Kaitaia. We've had teachers on our programs. We, we've been running them in regions so that they didn't have to go too far away from where they were working. And teachers are actually just constantly amaze me how hard they work to do their job, which is increasingly well paid. <laughs> well, I think pay is one thing, but the complexity, because you're dealing with people at some very vulnerable times in their lives, you know, who are trying to mentally and socially and emotionally grow at the same time they're trying to learn. And, you know, all schools have interesting challenges in different in different types. So one more level of uh, curriculum is, is naturally going to be intimidating. It's like you have to fit it in. And in fact, from next year, the, the new digital technologies curriculum is across all curriculum areas. And it's compulsory. And right. you know, yesterday, it was in, in the media, local media, yesterday, how few teachers are ready for this new compulsory curriculum. And to our uh, knowledge and across our experience across the country, it's only about 5% of all teachers have actually actively acquired the skills to teach. And yet every teacher wow. has to teach it from the age of you know, school, school entrance, so five years old, all the way through to year 10, it's compulsory. Gosh, that's... Changing of the times, there's going to be a lot of learning going on from all accounts. Um, amazing. Yeah, looking forward to seeing that. Um, one final thing, even though I could talk to you for hours, I know you, your time is precious. What is one thing that you've learned recently yourself? Because I'm sure you're, you know, you're curious and you're always learning. Even just the event yesterday probably expanded your mind once again. But is there any new skill that you've learned recently that you weren't expecting to? Uh, look, I, I've, I mean, my job is to learn and to things. So I, I've taken up, for example, mindfulness more more actively recently. We run it uh, within our organisation for both students and for staff. I think that's really something I've really taken to and just having that kind of clear headspace, which I think helps you learn. On, a, on another side, not so much what I've learned, but what actually is keeping me awake is the knowledge that early next year when Facebook launched Libra, they, their new cryptocurrency, to the world's largest population group of you know, 2.6 billion people, a third of the world's population who are on the Facebook channel or platform, 
and what that is going to do in terms of undermining what we know as our traditional financial systems and which are highly regulated and very complex and compliance based so whether you, you, know, you love or hate your banks you know, there is a link back to typically local governments and there's lots of regulation I'm really interested in what is going to happen where a whole generation who you know, particularly younger generation who are very heavy users of Facebook, even if it's just to keep in touch with friends, what happens when suddenly Facebook, who don't need a branch, they don't need paperwork, they don't need a relationship, they already know everything they know because of the data they hold about you, where that will go. I think it's going to be a really interesting reinvention of our financial systems based upon you know, a tech giant. Do you see it as a, a positive thing or are you a little bit scared about it? I'm incredibly nervous about it. I mm. think that you know we... we we have to be thinking, on one hand, the evolution's already happened. We've had fintech and disruptive banks and people coming in and really challenging those traditional systems. But the scale of an organization that is, you know, such a wealthy, well-resourced, influential organization, uh, particularly in developing nations where populations are younger, I think Libra as a cryptocurrency is going to be as big a game changer as the smartphone was when it launched with Apple, where everything changed overnight and, uh, and suddenly we, you know, we literally can't live without our smartphones. So yeah. it's no, thank you for sharing that. It's very true. And I know that just in the last couple of days here in New Zealand, um, I think the inland revenue has allowed people to be able to play employees through cryptocurrencies of their choice. And I find that fascinating because I think that takes you into a whole new place where what if employees take their salary and then they straight away put it into their fund, et cetera, or maybe they don't do so well with it. And then suddenly you've got this whole financial mismanagement just because you're not receiving it in normal capacity. Maybe not quite the same, but it is, it's just opening up and it's fascinating to see. And once again, comes back to learning and being just on top of things and the speed at which they're changing. And as you said, it's not going to get any slower. <laughs> so yeah, I, like just even simple examples, like when scooters became available in our streets, you know, whether it was, you know, there's many different companies playing that space, but let's go with Lime. Literally overnight, we worked it out and we changed our behavior. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we adopt things that we like that solve a problem so quickly. And, and that's where I think some of these tech giants are going to have a real impact on our traditional systems because they, they know so much about us. They know what the, the pain points are and they solve problems and problems to ex, you know, and access to finance and to venture capital. It's constant. It's a constant challenge for people to get you know, loans, to get houses. It's, you know, so anything to do with financial systems is going to be interesting. It is. And I love how you brought mindfulness into that because that is going to be more necessary than ever to deal with the rate of change and what we're adopting to just to be very still present in the moment and understand who you are and how you turn up in this world. So thank you so much. This has been a fantastic talk. Um, I hope that people have enjoyed listening in and it's expanded their mind and got them thinking. And so where can people find out more about the work that you do? Um, so they, uh, Tech Futures Lab is probably the best place. So literally techfutureslab.com or themindlab.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Francis. You're welcome. Great chatting. Thank you so much for listening in. I um, could chat to Frances for hours and I'm definitely going to have her back on the show. If you enjoyed that, please, as I mentioned in previous episodes, just turn to a friend and say, you know what, you should be listening to the Untapped podcast with my friend Natalie Sisson. You can find it on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify, but please just share this podcast or the link to this podcast that you're listening to with a friend. It would be so appreciated because 
you sharing with your friends and telling them what you're listening to is the best possible way to spread the word about untapped and to really help people to tap into their potential and what the future holds for them and how to get paid to be you all the things that i love discussing right here on the podcast and i did mention in a previous episode that i have something really special coming out soon in order to hear about that please come across to nataliesisson.com and if you haven't already download my free audio and pdf book called get paid to be you it's awesome it is being downloaded by hundreds of people i'm getting such amazing feedback on it it's my best of my best work piled into a very short useful practical pdf along with an audio guide on how to do some exercises that will help you tap into your skills knowledge and expertise so that you can get paid to be you in multiple different ways that feels on purpose that makes an impact and feels right for you and who you uniquely are. So again, you can find that on the homepage at nataliesisson.com. It's also in the show notes of this podcast. And people who have opted in for that are going to be first to hear about a very special thing that I'm working on and releasing very shortly that's going to help you actually with creating extra revenues so you can have more financial freedom and share your gifts with the world. I'm Natalie Sisson. You've been listening to the Untapped Podcast. And I just really appreciate you and want to say a huge thanks for listening. And now go and tap into your potential. <laughs>